Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Opera After Dark. It's making my skin crawl. That, I interval, deliberately... that interval didn't work. <laughs> I just, yes, I should have picked like an open fifth. <laughs> <laughs> well, hi everyone. Today, I think it's fairly obvious who we're going to be talking about. Um, cousin to the great Ira Glass. I did not know that. Yes, randomly, the Glass family is quite talented. We're talking about composer Philip Glass. Philip Glass. Philip Glass, that's right. And the way that we're going to go about this is we're going to talk about Philip Glass today. We'll learn a little bit about his life, some of his works. We'll talk a bit about minimalism and what that is, what it means. And then next week, we're going to talk about one of his operas that is soon going to be broadcast to theaters around the the world. Uh, so we will kind of get some basis for our discussion in the next episode with this one. Sounds good. Let's let's get into it. There's a lot to talk about. Right. I do kind of on the onset want to say I feel like people, even if they don't know a lot about Philip Glass in the opera world, they're still very opinionated about Philip Glass. Like people are like, oh, Philip Glass, minimalism, bah, they don't like it. Even though I, I feel like they don't really know anything about it. Well, I, I feel like, well, we're going to talk about this, but Philip Glass is probably one of the most important composers in music in the 20th century. Like him or not. Whether you like him or not. Doesn't yes. matter. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, I would say, certainly one of the most commercially successful composers. Mm-hmm. Um, from a more modernist school, you could say. Definitely. All right, so let's talk a little bit about from whence he came, who is this person, and then we'll talk about his music and we will uh, listen to some different things that he wrote and learn about minimalism and where he fits into this. Um, He was born in Baltimore. His father ran a record store. His mother was a teacher and a librarian, and he his first instruments were violin and flute and it was really flute that he ended up studying a little bit more seriously and he went to the Peabody Conservatory hey hey yo <laughs> and hey can we get a birth date oh sorry yes of course he was born in 1937 he is still alive and well today as we record this. Right. Yeah, and he really did rise to fame, I would say, in the 60s and 70s, early 80s, along with this rise of minimalism that he was pretty integral in making this new form of music uh, quite popular in the kind of art music scene. We'll talk about that in a minute. But to get there, he studied at a variety of places as a young musician and as a composer. So he studied flute at Peabody. Then he went on to study at the University of Chicago, and he started working on scores and a little bit of composing there. But he also studied piano. And then he went on to the Juilliard School. He was at Juilliard at the same time as Peter Shickley and Steve Reich. And mm. yes, uh, also two big names. Peter Shickley is the one. I'm pretty sure that he's the same one who made that um, Beethoven's Fifth 
recording where he like narrated the recording like he was a hockey announcer. Oh. I don't know what you're talking about. Really? No. If that's on YouTube, we got to put it on the page for this episode. That sounds too good. PDQ Bach. It is it is on it is on YouTube. Wait. Yeah. Peter Shickley is PDQ Bach. I'm pretty sure. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. Moving on. <laughs> Why do you hate PDQ Bach? So stupid. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny. Like stupid I, funny. I really enjoy I really enjoy his sports casting narration of Beethoven's Fifth. Well that I'll have to listen to because I've not heard that you know why you hate PDQ Bach is because it's kitschy and you don't like kitschy things. I love kitschy things. I love kitschy things. I just think it's not particularly well done. Kitsch. <laughs> I, Nobody come for me, please. I'm tired. <laughs> I the only one that I really know by him is that sports casting of Beethoven's Five, and I very much enjoy it. I don't think there's a lot of great recordings of it out there because it's fairly old at this point mm-hmm. but, but we're not talking about him we're talking about philip glass right he was at juilliard philip glass for a while okay. um he worked at the aspen music festival and when he was there he met darius mio and charles jones and then um he was a composer in residence in pittsburgh and he was starting to compose and dabble in composing but he really felt like he needed more training and so he actually went to Europe and eventually went to Paris where he studied with the great and amazing Nadia Boulanger. Oh, not too shabby. Ooh. Yes. And for those of you who don't know much about Nadia Boulanger, she worked for a very long time at the Paris Conservatoire. She was a pianist and composition teacher and she basically taught like anyone who was anyone in composing that lived during her lifetime. Nice. <laughs> so it's true. It sounds like she's a badass woman. She definitely was, for sure. I think that because she was mostly a teacher and didn't have a huge output of compositions herself, she doesn't really get her due as a huge influencer in music in like the more popular realm or understanding of music history. But music historians know that this woman was incredibly influential in the people that she taught and basically training composers how to think creatively and how to have like a, a toolbox of techniques that they could draw from when they were composing. Her sister, Lily Boulanger, was also a composer, I believe. And I think Lily Boulanger won the Prix de Rome at some point or was a in the running. I think so. I'm, I don't really But anyway. Nice. So, yeah. so when did Philip first kind of like bust on the scene? Or was it a gradual thing? Um, I mean, it was a little bit gradual. So while he was studying with Nadia Boulanger, another really important thing that happened was he got this job transcribing a film score uh, that was composed by the sitar player Ravi Shankar, who's an incredibly important sitar player and, and musical figure. And it was in the process of transcribing this score or this recording by Ravi Shankar into actual musical notation that Glass had kind of a revelation in how he thought about rhythm and how he thought about composing music generally. And so he actually said once that 
quote, what came to me as a revelation was the use of rhythm in developing an overall structure in music. I would explain the difference between the use of Western and Indian music in the following way. In Western music, we divide time as if you were to take a length of time and slice it the way you would slice a loaf of bread. In Indian music, and all the non-Western music with which I'm familiar, you take small units or beats and string them together to make up larger time values. So I think he's saying that instead of starting with like a preconceived idea of the maximum amount of time you have and then dividing it up within that maximum amount of time, which is a very Western music way of thinking about notating music and thinking about music, he was very struck by this idea of stringing together smaller units or beats in a kind of organic way or letting them develop in an organic way with no preconceived idea of how long or short that length of time might be. Make sense? Yes. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. Is that then, do, do you end up seeing in, in that style of music more uh, what we would think of in Western music as atypical, like time signatures, where you have something that's like, I don't know, seven, nine or whatever? That I'm not really sure because I actually haven't looked at a lot of the notated music of Ravi Shankar or even Philip Glass's music. I find I'm not, I haven't played a lot of it or performed a lot of it, but it doesn't necessarily strike me that he's always using like uneven or asymmetrical rhythmic units. It's more about like how you conceive of rhythm, if that makes sense. Um, you don't mm-hmm. conceive of it in a kind of predefined chunk of time. But I would have to look into it more to see just how often he uses kind of out there time signatures in his writing. I don't know off the top of my head. But fair enough. But yeah, so so this kind of experience working with the music of Ravi Shankar was very influential. And he eventually uh, moves back to New York City in the late 60s. And then he starts writing music in New York City that kind of gains a little bit of a cult following. And how this happens is um, at the time he lived in lower Manhattan in what we call Soho. And he, at that time in like the late 60s and throughout the 70s, it was an area that wasn't particularly like wealthy in Manhattan. And so there were a lot of artists that lived in that area. And there was a lot of experimental art that flourished there. And so he formed an ensemble in order to be able to experiment with different types of composition and have a group to actually perform his works. And he didn't have a lot of money to do this. In a way, he really kind of typified like the starving artist persona, or at least when you read about him, you read about how he had this ensemble and on the side, he was working as a plumber and as a New York City taxi driver mm-hmm. in order to make <laughs> ends meet. And I read this great story once where there was a woman who got into his cab and um, it was shortly after Einstein on the Beach had its Met Opera Uh, premiere and he was still driving a cab to make ends meet and she got into his cab and she said uh, she looked at his medallion in the back of the cab and she was like oh sir you have um, the same name as a very famous composer did you know that and he was like well actually I am I am Philip Glass (laughs) (laughs) and the woman like just couldn't couldn't believe that she was 
in a cab, and her cab driver was the famous composer Philip Glass. So, anyway, so he 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 forms the Philip Glass Ensemble. They start performing works in and around New York City, and he starts composing for this ensemble as a way to to get his works performed. At this time, he also meets uh, Robert Wilson, and he and Wilson become good friends, and it's with Wilson that he creates his first opera, Einstein on the Beach. Nice. And this was a pretty huge deal when Einstein essentially made its Met Opera premiere. So Einstein had its world premiere somewhere in Europe, and it had been performed at a couple... Uh, houses and venues in Europe before it was ever performed in the U.S. And I can't remember who it was, but somebody at the Met Opera in the administration had heard about all of these performances of Einstein on the Beach in Europe and how it had generated quite a cult following. And they called Philip Glass and said, do you want to uh, mount a production of Einstein at the Metropolitan Opera Company. Um, We can't offer you a slot in the main opera season. So you would have to basically front the money to rent out the house on a Sunday. Oh, my God. Yeah. What the hell? (laughs) Yeah. And so they said you would have to rent out the house on a Sunday. It would mean paying triple time wages to the unions. And we essentially have two Sundays that we can offer to make this happen. And... Uh, I think Robert Wilson told this story in a film that I watched a long time ago. And Wilson was like, uh, so Philip and I were talking about it. And we said, like, we're poor, we're broke, we have no money, we have no idea if this will succeed. Let's just do it. (laughs) (laughs) What's worse? Or what could happen? Are we going to be more Right. I'm pretty sure sure that it was like a huge financial risk for them they probably had to either go into debt take out a loan in order to produce it not really knowing if it would Mm -hmm. make its money back and then when they had the tickets go on sale apparently both performances sold out within like the first 24 hours of tickets going on sale oh my god and because they weren't performing it within the regular opera season and because they were they had a lot of control over essentially like renting the house out on their own dime they got to structure how the tickets were sold mm-hmm. and so they completely overhauled your typical like opera house pricing and they put like $10 tickets right beside $300 tickets in the orchestra and they just mixed everything up so that oh, nice. um you had no idea like why your ticket might be a certain price <laughs> um, it wasn't based on location in the opera house or sight lines. It was just like they randomly kind of assorted the whole opera house. And um, and that really was part of this whole idea of turning opera on its head a little bit. And Einstein on the Beach is known in opera history as being this really important moment where it challenged kind of everything that opera was thought to be up to that point. So... The whole thing is four hours long. It's longer than that. Longer than that. Uh, there's. <laughs> I've seen have it. Have you seen it? Yeah. Oh, you have. From start to finish? From start to finish. Wow. Uh, so Einstein on the Beach doesn't have like a linear narrative. Right. Um, they did a revival tour of it and it came to BAM and that's where I saw it. And so it's so long and there is no plot. It's just sort of scenes that um, it's expected and encouraged for you to just sort of wander out take a break and come back so there was a moment where we left and i remember we went and got bagels 
and just like <laughs> took a break and then came back because not like you're missing anything. Um, and I enjoyed it for the most part. There's one 20 minute scene where I reached over uh, to Ian and I was like, this is the day that I kill you. Because um, <laughs> it's one where I think it's just a, it's, a, it's just a mezzo solo, I think. Um and the only is a revival of the Robert Wilson production. This is the only production of Einstein on the Beach that exists, um, I think. The stage is black, and there's this big bar of light that starts out horizontal, and then it ever so slowly <laughs> goes up until it's vertical, and then it ever so slowly starts going down until it ends up horizontal. And that's the end of the scene. I was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, feel I like hate this so much. There's probably not an appropriate time to to say this, and I imagine you guys might disagree, but I feel like Philip Glass is a great composer to um, to experience and interact with when you're also experiencing and interacting with other substances. Am I wrong? No. I feel like <laughs> a lot of people probably experienced Philip Glass music in that way and still do, I suspect. I feel like a lot of people that were involved artistically in the creation of Einstein <laughs> on the Beach were also on some things. If you look at some of the, the dancing that's choreographed into it and in some of the tri- in the trial sequence, um Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I It was the 80s. 80s it was um and it i read a little bit about this the whole idea of like how do you reproduce einstein on the beach because mm-hmm. the original work was so strongly tied like the music is so strongly tied with the text with which is so strongly tied to the movements and the choreography and the staging and there are some points in the quote-unquote libretto that there aren't actually <laughs> words it's pictures was what glass and wilson collected Mm -hmm. and so both glass and wilson are very pro einstein on the beach having new productions and having multiple interpretations but they also realize that because of the way it was initially constructed it's incredibly difficult to do that because the original production is essentially part of the original composition right Mm -hmm. And so apparently uh, when Akhenaten, which is the opera we're going to talk about in our next episode, when it had its world premiere, it was to be part of a trilogy. It was the third opera in what they ended up calling, what Glass called the portrait trilogy. And Einstein on the Beach was opera number one, Satyagraha was opera number two, and Akhenaten was opera number three. And Yeah, and he had conceived of this idea of a trilogy after Einstein was already composed and after he and Wilson had already produced it. And so they were planning to do Akhenaten as part of the full trilogy in Stuttgart. And the idea with Stuttgart, which Stuttgart committed to like a 10-year period working with Glass where 
first they were going to reproduce Einstein on the Beach, mm-hmm. then they were going to produce Satyagraha, and then do the world premiere of Akhenaten, and then they were going to do the following season after they had produced all three separately, they were going to do a trilogy mm-hmm. on their season. So it ended up being like a 10-year commitment to producing the works of Philip Glass in this portrait trilogy. And as he was writing Akhenaten, he was advising these reproductions of Einstein and Satyagraha in Stuttgart. And so he and Robert Wilson ended up reproducing the original version of Einstein at an American house somewhere and recording it because when they did the production uh, at the Met, they didn't have great recording equipment at the time or the money for it. Mm -hmm. And so now that they had a bit more notoriety, they had some funding to record the original version of video of it. And then from that produce essentially two Uh, official scores for Einstein. One of them is like the original version of Einstein, where in addition to producing the original score, you also reproduce all the original choreography and staging, right? And then the second version is a score for Einstein that allows you to create a new production with new choreography and staging. And that was what they ended up giving to Stuttgart. Hmm. So that the Stuttgart production could be its own new thing, but still be informed from the original, but not a direct reproduction of it. Okay. So did the trilogy ever happen? Yes, the trilogy happened. Yeah. Oh, when was that? Uh, That was not until, I think, 1990 or close to 1990. I'd have to look up the actual date. Okay. All right. Part of the reason they wanted to reproduce Einstein with a fresh production in Stuttgart was because for the trilogy, the Stuttgart management really felt that, or maybe not the management, but the director that they had brought on for Akhenaten really wanted to create a kind of continuous aesthetic for all three operas if they were going to perform it as a trilogy. And so in order to do that, they needed to you know, bring in a fresh idea for the production. Anyway, there are some really famous parts of Einstein on the Beach where I feel like if you've ever heard Philip Glass, you've probably heard these particular excerpts played as being super evocative of his minimalist style or minimalist period, mm-hmm. one of which we attempted to sing at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> <Did it. laughs> Beautifully. Beautifully. But here are a few other moments from Einstein on the Beach so you can get a sense of what they really sound like, and then we'll talk a little bit about minimalism uh, to give you a sense of this, what the mechanics are of this musical style. A tiny clip, because all the clips in that opera would be like 20 minutes long. Tiny in relation to how long they actually are. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
Okay, so we always use the term minimalism to describe the music of Philip Glass, and he himself actually hates being called a minimalist composer because <laughs> of he feels like it puts a box around. Well, what does he want to be called? I don't know what he wants to be called, but I, I've i just read everywhere that he loathes the term minimalism. Oh, he um, so because it's too restricting, it, it kind of like puts a boundary on what's possible from his musical style. It's like Debussy and Impressionism. He hated being called an Impressionist right. composer, even though I think retrospectively it's the best way to teach somebody what the music of Debussy um, means in like the grand history mm-hmm. of music. Yeah, I was also thinking it's kind of like a hipster. Like a hipster will never agree to being a hipster, but right. that's totally part <laughs> of what makes them a hipster. Right, yes. And there are a lot of people who take issue with the idea of being called minimalist. But if you look in the Oxford Music Dictionary or in the Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians, the definition of minimalism is typically we consider it borrowed from visual art to describe a style of composition characterized by an intentionally simplified rhythmic, melodic, and harmonic vocabulary. So if you kind of strip away a lot of the traditional packagings of music in the Western canon and look at paring things down to a melodic cell or a rhythmic cell or a harmonic cell, and then instead of developing that within traditional harmonic rules or counterpoint like Bach might have done, you repeat particular ideas over and over again and you change them very gradually over time. And there's many different ways that you can change them over time. And so you can layer all of these techniques such that the score itself ends up sounding quite complicated if you wanted to. But usually we conceive of minimalism being that there are simplified musical ideas or very concrete and direct musical ideas that are repeated many times and manipulated in different ways but they're not like embedded within this larger uh, grand through composed counterpoint like you might find in Wagner. So this was a big reaction to the rise of the second Viennese school and then a lot of the composers that followed composers like Pierre Boulez where they were basically championing serialism as the one and only way to write truly modern music and so the other great thing about minimalism that I think people might not expect is that it's actually very tonal in its harmony. Usually minimalism likes to play with open intervals or kind of sweet sounding chords and harmonies and then just building them and arranging them in kind of unexpected ways or in repetitive ways and then Mm -hmm. slowly changing those intervals over time. But the result is that they're usually quite harmonious sounding. There's not a lot of jarring dissonance in minimalist music uh, per se. Do you have like a classic example if somebody's like, play me something that's minimalist? Yeah, I think, um, so there's a few kind of classic things you could play. Philip Glass wrote a series of etudes for solo piano, which are a great example of this compositional technique.
And then another piece not by Philip Glass that's quite popular as an example of this is Terry Riley's In the Sea. Mm-hmm. Yes. Shall we listen to some of that? Sure. Yeah. In addition to Philip Glass and Terry Riley, Steve Reich is also really well known and associated with this particular era of music, as is Lamont Young, although Lamont Young was perhaps a little bit more experimental, one could say, and more performance art-ish than Philip Glass. Um, but this whole movement really did challenge the kind of modernist aesthetic, and in opera, as Elspeth mentioned, you tend to have almost like a deconstruction of the idea of narrative. Einstein on the Beach has no narrative, really. It's just scenes kind of strung together that don't really follow any linear pattern. And all of this really did challenge what people thought was high art at the time. But I've been told that if you lived in New York in this time period, like in the 70s and 80s, 
when Philip Glass, when his music started to move uptown, so to speak, when it started mm-hmm. to be performed at Lincoln Center in the Metropolitan Opera, that was a true sign that this style was being recognized as incredibly important in the history of music or in the kind of new musical aesthetics of the time and considered high art, even though it was a radical departure from everything that had come before, because if it had stayed, quote unquote, downtown, it just would have stayed one of those like strange experimental things that those downtown artists were doing. But (laughs) coming uptown was kind of like being recognized as having made it Mm -hmm. in in the high art scene. As far as you can tell, are there people that are like super into minimalism? Are there like ring heads, but for minimalism? Sorry about the reference, Elspeth. There That's must okay. be. There must be. Like glass heads? I don't know. <laughs> glass heads. <laughs> oh, glass heads. Nice. Okay, well, if if you're listening to this and you're a glass head, hit us up. We want to know who you are, what you do. <laughs> so many questions. There are there are kind of other, I would say, like offshoots of minimalism. Like Arvo Pert is really well known oh. as he's kind of known as like fusing minimalism with mysticism. And so I think that lends a whole other spiritual aspect to it and like trance-like meditative thing. Oh, man. So I read and I, I saw an interview for a documentary and I think it's on YouTube. Everyone go look it up. I'm not going to post it because it's very long. But it's uh, <laughs> Part and Bjork talking about music. And it is one of the funniest, most incomprehensible things that I've ever seen in my entire life. It's, wow. It's bananas. I have no idea what's going on. They're both like nuts. It's great. I highly recommend it. <laughs> is that on YouTube? We got to add that. Oh, I think on it's on YouTube. We got to add I'm not that. Sure. Put it on the page. I don't remember where I saw it, but it is worth digging for it, people, because it's it's magic. Right. Speaking of people like Philip Glass interacting with non-classical music people or Arvo Parrott talking oh, to Bjork. did I give you a nice segue? You did. Oh. Perfect segue. Thank you. Uh, Glass has done quite a few other things and collaborated with a lot of different types of musicians in different genres um, above and beyond his time working on the portrait trilogy of operas. And so he's uh, collaborated with people like Mick Jagger, Paul Simon, Leonard Cohen, uh, and he's done a bunch of other things he's written a ton of film music so Mm -hmm. you if you've ever seen the hours he wrote the very famous film score to the hours i believe that was in 2002 Mm -hmm. and um he also wrote a a bunch of other i think the truman show is his and he's one of several awards for his film music work uh the illusionist and notes on a scandal um yeah just He's an extremely prolific composer. I feel like he's done a bunch of different things. Am I missing like a really famous film? No, I'm just looking at your notes and it said Fantastic Four, but apparently that's a Brazilian film. For a second, I thought he meant like the (laughs) the superhero (laughs) movie and I was like, really? (laughs) There was one, one score that he wrote for a film in 1982 and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it's Koyanisquatsi. Um, but it was apparently like incredibly famous when it when it made its premiere. It, it was a kind of a groundbreaking work. And the guy's still alive. He's still Wait, alive and like still composing today. He wrote the music to to Candyman. Yeah, the horror Farewell film Candyman. <laughs> <laughs> Nineteen ninety five. 
It was a and wild time. Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Damn, Philip Glass. I mean, I'm not going to watch it because I can't do horror movies, but interesting. <laughs> he Some yeah. of his music was featured in uh, the episode Valley of Darkness in the remake of Battlestar Galactica for all you sci-fi fans out there. Ooh, Everyone, you should watch that. It's excellent. Amazing. It's so good. If you like Outlander, the people that are in charge of Outlander did Battlestar Galactica. There you go. And attention to detail is obvious in both series. Moving on. He's also written for some television series, uh, most recently Night Stalker, a 2005 television series. I don't know what that is. Anyway... But yeah, so he's done a lot of different things. He's very important and influential. He's also mentored a lot of people. I know that uh, Nico Muley, I guess like apprenticed with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nico Muley worked as his assistant as uh, an orchestrator for some film music. I think Nico Muley was an assistant orchestrator on the score for the hours, oh, I cool. think. And so you can see kind of the influence of being deeply acquainted with Philip Glass's music and compositional style in Nico Muley's music as well. Although I think the two have a pretty distinctly different voice, but there is kind of a path of influence between the two. Thank you so much, Naomi. I feel like I'm, I'm up to date on my minimalism and my Philip Glass. You're welcome. Uh, Philip, if you're listening to this podcast, be sure (laughs) to hit us up. Uh, We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Opera After Dark, or you can find us at operaafterdark.com. And, Philip, if you want to support the podcast, (laughs) you can write a review uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, Similarly, you could go to patreon.com slash operaafterdark. Support what we do. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, bud. Also, make sure to tune in next week to our next episode where we will deep dive into the opera Akhenaten. Learn some things. Learn Until some then, things. <laughs> I'm Kyle. I'm Naomi. And I'm Elspeth. Thanks Bye. for listening. Thanks, Phil. Bye.